Okay, hi everyone. This is the next episode in our Mike Oldfield podcast. And uh, this time we're talking about tubular bells. So it's the second episode after we spoke about Opus One last time. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to what Tobias has to say. He uh, sort of has prepared a little bit of an introduction. So let's see what that's like. Yes, I think we agreed that um, we had a good, really good talk last time. But maybe um, um, it might be nice to um, to give this one a little bit more structure. Um, I was thinking a lot about the um, the historical time in which um, tubular bells um, fell, and um, with Opus One, I try to maybe work out how um, completely unique it is in in this context. Um, and um, at the same time, it's also um, a very special moment in his personal life. Now, I know that Mike has been getting increasingly exasperated with people trying to find um, a story or a concept in tubular bells. And he's always maintained that there is no such thing, that there is no concept and no um, uh, program at work here. Um Which is probably true. I mean, um, I suppose it's similar to um, Pink Floyd and the Wizard of Oz thing, where you can find hidden connections between music and, and, and images or a narrative if you search for it long enough. The thing is that, um, of course, there is a story to Tubular Bells, and he's been very open about sharing it, and um, not just in Changeling, but in various documentaries. Um, I think... It captures him really at a pivotal moment in his in his personal life. Um, he was at, like at first he's, he's made his experiences in the music biz um, with uh, Sally Angie and uh, and his and his sister. So he had some experience in terms of how the the business worked. Um, he was making it as a musician. Um, he was making it as a guitarist. I think he was finding his own style, his voice. Um, also the interaction with other musicians in the live band context. And by the time that he was seriously work, started working on, on Tubular Bells, he had, as it were, risen from the newcomer in the Cabernet's band to what I think he actually calls in his book um, the boss of the band because Ayers was actually desperate to get him back and pretty much agreed to every single condition he um, he, he made. Um, and if they had been able to work it out as a group maybe we would now know Mike as a fantastic um, songwriter and uh, or maybe just a, a guitarist in the vein of Eric Clapton because he might have stayed on in that context and maybe gone on into a completely different career. Um, so he was making it as a musician, um, as as an artist. Um, you know, the funny, funny thing is that I've, I only recently heard another old interview with Mike And he said that uh, he already had a manager at the mm. age of 16 or something. Yeah. <laughs> just like in the context of what you just said, I think it's it's really funny. Yes, I believe actually. Wasn't it the same guy who actually worked with Pink Floyd for a while as well? I, I have no idea. I don't yeah. know. I think, uh, yes, he did. That is crazy just, just to think about. It. I mean, today it's actually pretty commonplace, but at mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, the music is going really well. On the other hand... Um, At home, his mother um, was slipping increasingly into depression. Um, his father had, I could say, all, all but disappeared, I think, at this moment from his life. Um, there were at least serious troubles at home. 
And um, he also at this time made his first, like his first experience with LSD and then obviously the horror trip, which would eventually <clears throat> um, send him into a decade-long spiral of uh, psychological problems. Um, so even if there is no concept behind the album, I think one of the things which makes it special is that all of this in some way or another finds a way onto the um, the finished music, which makes it so interesting. Well, well the concept is the music, right? The concept is the music, yes. Yeah. And the music is the concept. Yeah. Um, now, I so maybe as an introduction, I think the... The album is to me um, both a great a work of great happiness and, and a tragedy in a way. Um, on the one hand, it's 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 so beautiful and, and fantastic because simply because of the music and that it's there uh, and that we have it to to appreciate it. And um, also, it um, it was so successful that it allowed Mike to keep working in music, making music which was on paper, maybe entirely, would, would not, I don't think many people would have expected maybe that for this career to be able to sustain this for this long based on the kind of music he was making. And Tubular Bells made that possible. Um, I think it's maybe in a way a bit tragic that um, it was so great and it was so unreflected that um, I think it later... Um, caused him to actually search for answers. I think he, he said several times, he's talked a lot about the interview he, he conducted at the beginning um, when Tubular Bells was just out and how the journalist kept asking him why. And he it was impossible for him to come up with an answer and he kept wrecking his brain for an answer. And um, mm -hmm. um, probably during the first, uh, the, the, the big four albums the, um, and up until Incantations, I don't think he spent much time thinking about this at all. Um, and I think if there is something tragic about it is I think that he later actually did this, even though he, he claims that he wasn't. Um, there is an interesting interview, like a really short one conducted by Dutch national television when they did a series of um, short documentaries on the most important pieces of music. Um, and they uh, did one on the occasion of Tubular Bells 2. And in, And he's sitting behind, Mike is sitting behind his piano and playing the sequence of Tubular Bells 2. And he says, well, it's better than the first one. And, and the journalist says, why do you think it is? And then, of course, I hate the question why. It just is better. And um, it just is. Now, the thing is, I mean, subjectivity aside, I think it's clearly not better than the first one. And, um, and the fact that he kept searching for a way to come up with a similarly great sequence shows that he was asking himself what the magic might have been that caused him to write it. And, um, you know, the, the funny thing about that is that in other, uh, interviews, uh, he says that it's really not about what you play. It's about how you play it and that he can play anything and mm -hmm. make it sound great. Yes. And so it's funny that, you know, like even though he's pretty much aware of exactly that yeah. fact, he's still, as you say, like looking for, you know, exploring yeah. possibilities within this uh, initial idea of the yeah. theme, you know, tune A of Tribula Bells. It's, it's interesting. It is interesting. Mm -hmm. I just feel that um, in the mid-90s when um, the success 
started to slip commercial success. I'm not saying artistic because I think actually think in the early 90s that's one of his like he was hitting a peak actually in terms of composition, mm. uh, a new peak, a second peak maybe. Um, I think that he started looking <clears throat> for something in the beginning. He started asking himself the why. And I don't know if that was um, good for the music. Um, but other than that, of course, Tibula Bells is a great gift. Um, so I wanted to start off the debate um, with something I've um, thought about. And I thought it would be interesting to discuss it specifically with you, because you as a musician might, um, might have an answer to that. Um, if we look at how Tibula Bells came to be, there were so many things um, that... Um, stood in the way um, or could have been a problem. So maybe even like if, if Kevin Ayers had not given him his tape recorder in the first place, who knows whether he might have actually started recording it. I mean, at that point in his time, he needed all the help he could get. There's, uh, he describes how when he, um, on his first day of waking in the manor, um, there's breakfast prepared for him. And he, he actually singles that out and he says, okay, I knew that things were off to a good start. It was a nice change of pace. I think that's the place he was in. So I think the fact that, that Kevin actually gifted or, or allowed him to work with that may have been really important, much more important than we might think today where the technology is readily available. And then um, the first demo got rejected several times. Um, the gig with Louis at the manor, uh, no, the gig with Louis where he recorded for him was at the manor, which it could have been of any studio. And, and it was actually... And really a very low chance of it being there because it was actually not really ready in, as a studio at all. And then, of course, this, this um, thing about the roadie whom he met and who drove him uh, to, um, to his home where the, the demo tape was and back again so he could actually show the demo. Who knows what would have happened if, if, if that hadn't happened. Um, um, and of course, behind the scenes, th there was no Virgin Records at that moment. Um, and a lot of things would have ha had to happen for them to, first of all, come to the conclusion that they wanted to make, set up a record label. Um, and then for them to ch select this particular one. Um, there was only one record, um, one week to record the album, uh, to, um, which of course forced the recording process. Um, Viv Stanshall was there. The, all these, there's lots of things. I mean, obviously, looking, but there's a, you, you see lots of obstacles for the thing to be. So I, I've, I wondered after going through all that, if them, and this is maybe a sort of a, too overly spiritual question, but is it imaginable that there was sort of a, a uh, that fate wanted this music to be made? Like there's, a, there's this Miles Davis kind of blue that was recorded one day in the studio. Um, it was just a good session. Just an amazing session. But for this one, I think a lot of things had to come together. And I don't know if you, from experience, think that there are works which, in a way, have to be made. And then things against the odds happen and allow this thing to be done, be made. I mean, isn't it always the case that if you look back at something that you see, like the little stepping stones, how you got somewhere or like you know people you met and how that eventually led to you ending up where you are right now mm -hmm. and i think it's the pretty much the same with with tubular bells and mike's career but what is so cool is that i think it's it like if there's anything like de determination let's say it's it's mike's determination 
to make that to to believe in them himself to believe in that music not necessarily consciously believing in it but just having the drive to do it and i think that's what it comes down to so mm -hmm. to make things happen so you you move forward you 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 don't stop you know so even if there are phases of of depression you know you like when you come out of depression you just keep going and i think that's that is sort of like for many musicians like a common way of working it's like the up and down that like many people talk about mm. um that can relate to um composing to making records even to touring you have moments you have highs and you have lows and the uh, the energy and the will to actually go through that uh, repeatedly that's what makes things happen it's definitely a different kind of making things happen than it was with Hergest Ridge, where he sort of describes the process as deeply unpleasant, and he describes tubular bells as extreme as as, as one of the happiest, if not the happiest, phase in his life, almost. To totally understandable, right? <laughs> so, so you, once you've made the first record, and you need to follow it up, and you kind of like start, you know, from a clean slate. Yeah. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, I think that Hergus Rich actually kind of like really comes from a clean slate where with other pieces, you can tell that he's already referencing all the ideas, but, uh, Hergus Rich certainly is very fresh in that regard and like even more, even more, uh, focused, I mean, much more focused than Chip Bells in a way, uh, because there's only a couple of themes and, and the way that he's operating them. Uh, is is even more artistic in a way. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. I, I yeah. love that album as well. Yeah. Yeah. So with Tubular Bells, um, one of the um, wonderful things that I ran into pretty pretty early on was uh, a score reduction, basically that uh, David Bedford or a reduction of David Bedford's uh, score orchestral score into a piano version, piano reduction. And there are a couple pages before the actual score starts where there's a really short analysis of, of the piece. And I would like to read, <laughs> read just some of that um, because it's really interesting. Just side one, okay? Mm -hmm. so, but side one is here, according to, to um, David Bedford's analysis, is 23 sections, Mm -hmm. Okay, and so just so you see, I, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but so tune A, so repetitive figure, tune B, bass figure, you know, comes in on top of it's still it's still tune A, but you know, changing into something else by adding the bass line. Then tune C, A transformed into uh, a three three quarter note bars bar with descending chords, so like the original fifteen is then subdivided into five times three. Then tune D is tune A plus tune B plus tune C. And then the next section, which he calls tune E, is A plus B plus C plus new tune. <laughs> <laughs> then tune F then is the crescendo, you know, that's introducing the tune G, the, the beautiful melody. Right? Then we get tune A again plus new tune. Then we get a transition section introduction, like we, and then we have tune H, electric guitar. 
then chord sequences with super with I superimposed. So the melody of the bass guitar continues over the next section, which is in seven seven four, with the with the, the melody that keeps going in four four. Then tune G repeated. Now it comes tune A with G on bass guitar. So now this is the first combination of A and G happening there. Then then tune G slowly with chords and tubular bells. Like, you know, tubular bells happens twice before the finale, uh, you know. That's a very, very classical thing I was thinking as well, this this sort of announcing the, the thing. Yes. And then uh, as number 16 here, that's... Uh, New 6A tune with version of A as an accompaniment. Um, then there's a couple things where he doesn't even call them tunes, which is funny. Uh, syncopated chord sequence, development of last bass phrase, transition with tubular bells. That's where it gets quiet, that E minor chord yes. there. And then uh, tune J, new melody, leading to repeated bass riff. Mm-hmm. And then tune K, grand piano and announcement of instruments one by one. Climax with chimes dying away. And then 23, acoustic guitar ends with major version of tune A. So that's just the first side. So, and we can see like the first, more than the well, the first two thirds are really all variations, variations and combinations of like three, four themes. And then the finale, the introduction of the finale is sort of like something new, which then gets sort of rounded rounded out at the ending, in the end, by the repeat of theme A again. Do you know how he describes, I'm not quite, I mean, that was really interesting. I just couldn't follow it all instantly. There's this, what I'm going to call doom metal guitar section. Do, 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 yeah. Do. How does he, is there, how does that's, it? that's the tune, tune I. So that's, that's you, the so 11th section. And it's that melody that continues over in the next. Yeah. And and funnily enough, I um, don't remember which version it was I listened to, um, but that tune I is actually played in canon also mm-hmm. in the next section, in the seven four section. Really, really incredible. And also, like because I was saying that the Bono um, talked about Opus One that the repeated bass riff, the finale, so with the melodies mm-hmm. on top, that's like kind of like the strangest harmonically on the whole album. Not necessarily true. Like this chord sequence, which is, I think, A minor or B minor, A minor, G minor, which is just, you know, like the four, same shape, just shifted around with the bass guitar, the tune I on top, that is actually the most dissonant. I've always wondered where that comes from. Mm-hmm. Um but do you think because this one, if you if you were to play that on the piano, it's actually not that far away from the opening piano motor, like like tune A. That's true. Yeah. Do you think that that's coincidence because he was just playing within the same um, tonality, or is that also part of the grander design? Well, I'm calling it grand designer, but of the uh, of the um, inner logic of the piece. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know really. Okay, it's because... it's it's really it's really a super interesting melody. Um, yes, because it's it's so um, so it's you know the way it goes, it's like in four four, but then he puts this this three mm. note sequence on top of the four four, 
and it's it's really disorienting for people who really don't know it sounds like the time signature changes yeah and it goes up yeah. right and uh, i i i mean i have no idea where it comes from to be honest yeah. But it's like it's it's also what is special special about it is that it's such a long melody. I don't know, sixteen yes. measures or something. Yes. Right. It's a complete anachronism. I feel it's it's really I don't know when Black Sabbath came up. Uh, were they around? I don't think so. It's really doom metal before the fact. It's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we haven't like the the sound of it is incredible. Yes, I was going to ask him. Do you know how he? Um, I think there's a, a, a string bass, like a like a double bass or anything, something mm -hmm. or cello on there. Oh, you mean he doubled it with our instruments? It's it's doubled with like it's really uh, an instrument that is unique to that section. I think. I I mean I I don't know, but it's like the treatment of it, like yeah. and and you know like there are so many versions and so many mixes of this record right and i like the original is like fantastic because it has this it like all these different sounds they it just becomes like one thick mass and there's like a, a phaser on it or something yeah. and it just sounds so incredibly heavy and and great yes G ghostly i think it also this is heavy and ghostly it's really otherworldly yeah Yeah, totally. You know, and uh, and also, you know, this this little. Um, I also mentioned that when we talked about Opus One already. Like one thing that he does is that in a in a um, measure of where like the subdivision is eighth notes, mm -hmm. right? He would sometimes play triplets on top of that, right? Which carries through through a, a lot of his pieces. Actually, this sort of freedom to do that so to subdivide a beat into three and two at the same time and it's happening happening here as well so in the so in a way we could say that this tune i on bass guitar is probably a variation of the bass line and in, in tune a with those three and mm -hmm. and you have the same in the in this heavy bass riff also so potentially if another fusion sort of between different strands <clears throat> which have been yes yes and like like i think it's op it's most likely something that kind of like just intuitively happened mm -hmm. so it's just that we see these relationships after the fact um but it's kind of kind of like nice to see what the what the repertoire of musical expression of Yes. an artist is at the time that a record is being an album is being made yeah. or a composition is being made and that's why i think it's it's nice to point these details yeah. out do you think when when did you say did you hear the album for the first time i think you said with your father on uh, on a tape no it was with my with my uncle oh with your uncle yeah do you do you know roughly Because I know for myself pretty pretty exactly. When you started noticing all these hidden, like the connections which um, this um, overview provides, do you think? When did you think uh, you start noticing that? Because it's, I think, to many people, it may not even be that apparent that there's all these themes being passed around <clears throat> from um, the different instruments. And yeah, that's 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 a good question. I think I was probably. Um recognizing and hearing some of those but not to the extent that i that i understand mm -hmm. these interrelated 
this interrelatedness now. Um, yeah, but it's like after after the first um, the first crescendo, we have the mm -hmm. the big melody, the beautiful melody, as Mike calls it. Um, then we get that same that melody to continue, uh, but in minor key played on bass guitar with uh, with tune A on top. Yes, and another like a guitar solo, you could say a, a, a acoustic guitar solo, a melody, not a solo. I think it's a big difference. Uh, melody on top. And that's, I think, where, where I kind of like first really understood that there is the, that there is like, that he's playing mm -hmm. with those themes. You know? And I was, I, I don't know, I was maybe 11, 12 years old or something. Mm -hmm. So it must have been in the, in the mid 80s. I must confess, I, I heard this very late on, um, consciously, and um, through Tubular Bells 2, actually. Because I think in that piece, it's even, that piece is even more suffused with the different themes. Yes. Um, to a degree where it's almost like inconceivable. And I think, um, I probably noticed it first when I started listening to music, um, increasingly more by headphones, mm -hmm. on headphones. Um, so the stereo mix of Tubular Bells is, um, I still think that's an, like all the little flaws, non, um, notwithstanding, I think that's an amazing recording. Uh, under the circumstances and the time it had, it's incredible. But it really opens up even more on, on headphones, which I'm, which is why I'm really interested to hear once you've had the time to really um, sit down with it, the uh, the Atmos mix. I don't know, did you ever hear the 5.1? Because I could really imagine this is a piece which opens up even more if you listen to it on surround. Yeah, I mean, very early on, there was a quad version mm -hmm. of Triple Bells that got released, oh, yes. yeah. you know. Um, I mean, the, the, you know, the coherence of older surround formats is sort of, sort of lacking. Mm. Uh, Atmos has, has more, um, can potentially be much better. So I'm really looking forward to hearing it. Um, yeah, but it's really the, let's talk about the stereo mix. It's the coherence there. And the, fu the funny thing is that I've, I've always found that you know, like little things that would be details for others, right? In other music, like, uh, like the little, little tempo changes, right? Like we talked about that last time already as well. Like if the tempo changes is, is slightly different, slightly slower, slightly faster, it may not have the musical impact it's supposed mm -hmm. to have. And it's the same with Mike's and, you know, Mike Allflute Records mixes. Because, like, he does use he uses uh, harmonization quite a bit, so so um, melodies are being harmonized at an interval, for example, um, and uh, so the way that these are blended in the mix, the harmonies is inc is incredibly crucial because you're basically deciding for the listener what the listener hears as the lead melody, and and I see this brilliantly you know like taken care of in mike's work mm -hmm. really until he started re-releasing stuff where he changed the mix and it not saying that it was bad then but where clearly he didn't really maybe either care that much anymore or he wanted to intentionally kind of like show a different side of the same piece which is fair enough yeah. you know but i think that the The beauty in the balancing is like, okay, so the, the tune A, right? 
it stands for itself for a few repeats and then we get the bass to come in and also harmony part to come in and the funny thing is the harmony is lower than the main part mm -hmm. and so it's at a six like a sixth lower than the uh, original and and the way that it's mixed in it's like it's almost it is there it is very noticeable if you know it's there but it doesn't change the experience of hearing the top line in the same way and and this this balance he always struck beautifully i think yeah. that's a really good interesting point i think about the um the coherence of the stereo mix because stereo of course that i mean it was established by then but it wasn't it was still sort of um in discussion i mean it was still there was still a lot of um newness to the process novelty and um if you listen to a bird's records um like the early ones that's unlistenable um almost unlistenable in stereo because it's like uh, it's so this this ping-ponging and extreme panning yeah. <clears throat> um so they were really feeling their way into it and i think with this one interestingly um with tubular bells if you listen to it on headphones it has a far more psychedelic effect um there's one passage in particular i don't know which it is in Bedfield's um um, schedule um, overview, but there's well, it seems on headphones like all like there's four different themes playing at the same time, mm -hmm. in different rhythms, and in um, well, not different tonalities, but they seem to really be working independently. Yes, um, there's actually a funny moment in the Doug Halvering um, listening re reaction video where he arrives at that point and he's like um, completely, it's like his eyes are turning in his skull because it's so wild. But if you listen to it in stereo, it sounds perfectly uh, reasonable and um, and natural. Mm -hmm. Yes, That is quite an achievement. It's actually like two levels of listening at the same time. Yeah, two or more. Two or more. Right? Yeah, but but the, you know, stereo, um, stereo as we know it, the, the way to mix in stereo as we know it basically kind of started happening for real, maybe in the mid '60s, mm -hmm. and and so tubular bells is still kind of like part of the exploration of the format, yes, right. And it says on the on the back that it shouldn't be listened to in mono, right. And so it's really, um, you know, this idea to use the sound field so that it's not like hard panned, yeah, right. And I don't, I can't remember right now, but I don't think there's anything like super hard pant in no. on the whole record, and that's what what creates the coherence. And also somehow like the 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 tracking room at the manor probably had a nice sound anyway, so like there wasn't much of like certainly not not many artificial reverbs used. I don't don't think so. Um, I'm sure, like some maybe some plate reverbs and stuff were used, but. Um, the the recording kind of like had a sort of co coherence by the fact that it was recorded in a studio in the same space, and so the 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 parts they blend nicely, and the um, also like it you know people always talk about like how how big and how complex of a piece it is which it is yes but at any one moment. Uh, I don't know exactly, but there's no more than eight tracks playing at, mm -hmm. at, at the same time ever. Yeah. Even though it was recorded to six on sixteen track, you know. But the fact that there are so many different sections, uh, that sort of like that's where the puzzle starts, you know, because you have to have 
very different audio material on the same track. And that's why uh, when the mix down, um, you know, during the mix down, you'd have to have several people turning knobs. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Have you ever, just for the fun of it, tried listening to it in mono? Uh, I, I don't think I have. Well, I actually have. Like the, the tape I had mm -hmm. at the very beginning, the, the tape machine I had um, when I was 10 year old or 9 year old, that's, that's how I heard it, yes. So I have heard Still it in works. mono, but I have not consciously heard it in mono for a long time. What I think is um, great about the piece, and that comes back to this why question, maybe also in this, this question. I think the question why, I think he's exact blowing it a bit out of proportion, but I think underlying that uh, aversion against the why is the idea that everything has to be explainable or explicable and has to have a pinpointable reason underneath it. Um, what makes it fascinating to me is that, um, As I said, I, I came to um, see all these hidden connections, or more or less in some of them are actually pretty obvious. So it's strange I didn't notice them before, but um, I came to see them pretty late. And then once I started listening to the music that way, it's in like a new discovery. It's, it sends you down a new rabbit hole. Um, but I think even once you have this overview and once you know exactly what is happening, it doesn't end. I think that is one of the hallmarks of this piece and of great music maybe also is that the construction of it doesn't end where sort of the analysis ends. Quite on the contrary, I think the more you understand that um, the theme um, is constantly being reworked and um, transported to different parts of the piece, you start seeing it in maybe in sections where it isn't even intentionally uh, part of the fabric. Um, because the theme is made up of pretty few notes in a way. There is so there's so many potential um, variations and there's so many potential relationships that it increases your enjoyment, that it makes it almost seem like it was built from a tiny stem cell. And that it, it sort of it, it, it perpetuates itself. There's a sort of a momentum which never ends um, because this there's a drive in this opening sequence and I think maybe we can start talking about what, what makes it great but to me that's one of the things it, it, it opens up a space where everything sort of is potentially related yes so the theme right the very first one this little famous sequence um, what is special about it to me is that the the, the pivoting note Right? And the first note, the very first note, is the note E. And the note E goes to A, so the second note is A, which is the root note of the of the mm -hmm. beginning. It's in A minor, right? And actually, it's A A minor Aeolian for those who care. Okay, in this version. Um, so what happens is that it's the A and the E, and then you get the B. So you're not you're not getting the the third yet. So you don't know if it could still be in E minor, right? You get the B, which is the fifth of E, before you get the C, which is the third of A. So so even though these are like details, but we know our brains are very fast, and so so it just there's just this moment of confusion really. Like we don't know really what the what the root note is, and then like when we get the Then we get the G going back to the A. So then we get a little bit of a sense of like we land on A again. 
And then we get the minor third, then we get the, the C, the D, and the B, and back to the C. So so what I what I think is what, what's happening is that it's sort of like, because of this, it's sort of like floating a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's floating like in the air, and it's sort of like, it's sort of almost like a, you could say, almost like a trail in the air. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 just it's just not put into context. A little bit like the funny thing, a little bit like the what the record looks, the cover looks like. You have the mm. blue sky, and that's and there's something floating in the blue sky. Yeah. And and it, it feels a little bit like that. And only then, when the bass line comes in, things get cemented into okay, this is a minor. And I think that has a lot to do really with its with its beauty. And, and obviously, like, and so this is, this is like really interesting. Like, we don't know much about it. I don't know much about it because I was born in 72, right? So was this sort of like motif of the, in, in, because like talking about the exorcist, right? Was this motif of sort of like a glockenspiel kind of, um, um, music box, uh, Kind of sound has that's always been associated also with darkness or with horror films. Like maybe thinking about um, uh, something like uh, Rosemary's Baby or so. Um, yes, no, it's yeah. definitely different. It sticks out. It's um, the Glockenspiel. I would say that this sort of it has a, this uh, music box feeling, right? Yes. And that has been that was used in classical music. Um, I would say on a few occasions at least, um, like in um, some Tchaikovsky ballets. To um, suggest an eeriness, an otherworldly eeriness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I know that 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 The Exorcist was definitely itself a sort of a blueprint. And um, interestingly enough, um, John Carpenter actually said about Halloween, mm-hmm. um, the music to Halloween, which has an obvious similarity, mm-hmm. um, that he wanted he wanted to make. Uh, wait, I have to I have the quote mm-hmm. from an interview with him. He said. Um, The theme had a similarity to The Exorcist because of a really famous horror piece, but I couldn't even get near that. What was rattling around in my head was my father teaching me the bongos, teaching me four or five times, so that's what it was. But sure, Mike Oldfield's score was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the, Exorcist, uh, the Halloween would go on itself to become uh, a landmark movie. But, but he actually copied it more clearly on The Fog. So in The Fog, you have uh, an almost... Uh, Well, it's not verbatim, but it's uh, far more obvious mm-hmm. uh, yeah. reference. You know, and on, on top of what I just said about the uh, harmonic floatiness of it, mm-hmm. there is there is like the, the rhythm. Okay, so the first measure, as you could say, because if everybody <clears throat> kind of like refers to 4-4 and knows 4-4, For me, it's different, but <laughs> so so it seems like the first measure is cut short. It's only seven notes, not eight. Mm-hmm. And the second measure is like the full eight beats, right? So, and that's why, like, we get like seven plus eight, 15. Uh, we get that that sort of like skip. We get like, so between the first and second half, we have this little bit of skipping feeling, right? And then as a whole, though, as the 15-beat phrase, it repeats and it loops so beautifully and effortlessly that it sort of like becomes something that is, I think, um, well, it can't be for sure, can't know for sure, but if people really ever learn it properly in a sense that they could sing along with it 
or if it's something that always stays kind of like uh, ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that's difficult to answer, really, because I, I know it inside out and I know what it is, right? But that certainly kind of like adds to this incredible um, mystique, <laughs> if that's the right word, you know, the mysteriousness also of this little finding, right? And because it has that droning flavor, you know, of... Um, so it's six notes of the diatonic scale are being used in that, with the, the seventh note then played in the harmony, right? But it's only those six notes. And six notes work very well as a drone, also for, like, as a background for other music. So that's why the theme kind of appears in the background so much because it can just float on top of chord changes within the diatonic scale. And it always works, always makes sense. Wow. You know, and because the, the, the flat six, the, the minus six is not being used, that means it it's we don't get into a situation where you would actually have a tritone. Um, I mean, for the nerds, like you, you basically don't get the tritone between the B and the F. Right, in the theme. And that's why you can it can be used in very many different ways throughout the composition. I prepared a little bit about um, sort of the um, evolution of the sequence or the loop or the... Um, mm-hmm. Because this really... At, in 1973, and actually it, the sequence was there in 1971 or two already, this was a novel thing. Um, not entirely novel, but pretty novel. I mean, obviously, obviously there was repetition was there in um, in Baroque music with the ground bass. <clears throat> it was there in um, in folk music, um, and we know of sort of these novelty pieces like the bolero, where we have repeating rhythms and melodies um, being passed around. But I think I would argue that those are different. Um, I think the, that what we today call um, the sequence is is a product of the recording uh, of recording technology, um, and it was it, and it, a part of it came from rock and roll. <clears throat> so the I think the so if you there's a sort of trajectory here. Maybe one of the earliest examples is the theme from Peter Gunn by Henry Mancini. That's 1959. That has that. So that's the rock and roll riff. Mm-hmm. But just repeat it, and it uses it as a sort of a, as a base on top of which the melodies unfold. <clears throat> then um, Steve Reich piano phase and violin phase. I think both composed in 1967. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Reich has been very open about the fact that this was the, um, the idea came from recording technology, sort of um, yeah. that, that that sort of mis- tape phasing, yeah, tape phasing glitches, um, mm-hmm. mistakes, and that he simply. Then translated that to the um, mm-hmm. acoustic um, or the the, 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 the um, classical modern classical realm. <clears throat> um, before Terry Rice, the Rainbow and Curve, there, which Oldfield mentioned specifically as an influence, um, there's set the controls for the heart of the sun by Pink Floyd, where you have a very slow um, ostinato motif, which is almost a sequence, mm-hmm. um, and then one of these days. The, I think that's important, even though it's not a typical sequence, it's just one note, but it's this repeating, this thing of um, something which is all like we would today understand as a loop. Um, and then, of course, 
actually in 1971, and I think this one um, is, is really uh, most obvious, is the Who's Baba O'Reilly. I didn't know that for a long time. That is That opens with... Um, Possibly the first, like, um, what sounds, what today we're saying, like a sequencer playing, but it's actually um, done mechanically. It's, uh, they didn't have the technology then yet, but it's done with synthesizer or organ. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, so there was, this idea was floating around and still it's nothing like these. Um, I think that the, the, the interesting thing is that in all of these cases, the, the quality of the loop is that it jumps back to the beginning. So you have really a cyclical structure. Mm-hmm. Even in the Reich pieces, which of course then start to shift um, and um, create new rhythms and, and, and melodic structures, the idea is of course that the loop jumps to the beginning. So the, qu- the quality of the loop is of, of the sequence is determined by sort of the magic that happens if you repeat it um, and then it's sort of like a, like a snake biting its old tail. Um, but the but the tubular bell sequence, I, I would argue, is different. Um, there's there's sort of there's, there's different things I think would make it um, really stand out from these. Um, I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's a melody. That's what exactly it is, exactly right. It's it's more it's more than just a, a phrase that is being used in yeah. context with something else. It is the melody, and and that makes all the difference. Also, like when you say jumps back to the start, it I don't think I don't see it that way. It's sort of like on a it's sort of like more of a ring struct ring like structure. So you don't really know where it starts. It doesn't really matter where it yeah. starts. And and at the latest where he brings in the chords in three four is where you see okay like oh yeah like maybe the downbeats are actually not where I thought they would be, yeah. um, and and it's very made very very clear. Also, like something that needs to be pointed out, like in the development of the first section, like he starts out with just alternating the chords that alternate, um, that alternate under the, uh, the you know, under the the, the, the riff or the, the melody, uh, it's just two bars, uh, two two bars first, so A minor and G major, right? So, or or we could even say you don't, we don't even. Okay, it's like okay, it's like the harmonies are A minor and G major, and then what happens is that he starts extending the harmonies to also include uh, an E minor and F. So he goes from a two-bar repeating structure to a four-bar repeating structure, right? And then he goes to the next section where it goes to again to like a three-bar three-harmony structure, but changes the the rhythm to be all in four four, so like all these different features of that of that first section, they are in flux and they keep changing. And it's not like like it's always. So that's why minimalism really doesn't work as a term for no. the way that he just composes. Like he goes he goes from a small form and he 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 kind of goes wider. He goes from two bar harmony to four bar harmony then the harmony kind of like changes slightly and he changes the time signature to 4-4 while the theme on top keeps going but it also goes along with the new changes right once the E minor kind of is introduced like the theme kind of gets gets modified a little bit so it's not like it's it's sort of like a loop or it's a throwaway thing that just goes in the background it's always carefully considered like how it needs to mutate in order to fit in with uh, whatever else uh, 
of a development is happening in the piece. Yes, exactly. I, I was, I was, um, my pointing was exactly that. That I think the other ones, there you have this idea that it's um, it's a loop, and this one is different. I think to me, this feels like the, the feeling of this melody is that it's supposed to go on. It's supposed to go into a different direction, and then it returns in a way to the beginning. But to me, it feels almost like there is a different, like there is a a much broader harm, harmony. You could you could harmonize it very richly if you wanted to. Even mm-hmm. this, so it feels to me like it was like it's um, like it's a sample almost. Like it was taken out of a bigger context. It, it, it suggests something that is far bigger than it actually is, mm-hmm. and and this tension doesn't get resolved because. The theme stays the way it is, but the music around it sort of um, makes use of it and builds. And then he, I think it, it sort of resolves in the most unexpected way by, by getting it, putting it into major and then stripping it down again and, and, on, and putting it to the guitar. That is, an, so I know, it's, it's an, such a completely, to me, unexpected way of resolving it and, um, and bringing it to a close, to so just a, this beautiful, gentle close. Yes. And you know, like something I just I just realized, I haven't thought about this for a long time. Actually, the, the, the whole piece, the side one of Jewel Bell starts not on a downbeat. Mm. It's a pickup. It's an eighth note pickup to the downbeat. And again, like like how how would you know that when you first hear it? You really it's really kind of like playing with different perspectives, like with the listener. You don't really know where is the one. Yes, and and uh, it's it's a prime example for that. I had really forgotten about it because I, that's sort of like like if you are a young musician, that's sort of like one of the things that people talk about. Like, uh, where's the one, right? <laughs> As if that really matters. I but, think. Yeah. I mean, if you like on a metaphysical level, which uh, I'm coming back to again, it's almost like um, there is a moment before moment before second zero. You know, before the first bar, there is sort of something. Before that, yeah. So it comes from a place out of it, out of the outside of the music that enters into the music. Yes, it's leading, it's leading into it, yeah. and that's really also what uh, Mike Mike is, has has always been very good at. Like, so it's not that he was just like putting sections together that have nothing to do with each other. It's really like all the transitions are considered. You know they are they are composed, and there is there's there's always some sort of uh, hidden logic mm-hmm. in it. There was one other thing which I thought might explain this why it's special and what's definitely different from the, the other ones he came up with in two and three, and even in four. Even though I think actually I think four is um, is a great uh, variation of the theme, mm-hmm. um, and this is to me it, it has the feeling of a sort of a call and response. The, the two like if you break the um, the theme down into there's it's almost like the first part is asking and the second part is responding but they're never actually finding each other there's an inner there's a sort of um to me it feels like they're constantly revolving around each other looking for each other it doesn't get resolved fully there's that's, yeah, I mean the call and response actually is in the piece it's where where you have the 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 acoustic guitar playing the first half that is ended and mm-hmm. then the piano the second half in the first breakdown basically yeah. so it actually is there so mm-hmm. and and so like we 
we can assume that it's something that has been sort of like also clear to the composer. Ah, yes. Okay, yeah. because if if he actually did try to replicate it, he didn't do that in the in in the in the following um, variations. Exactly. He didn't do that. Yes. Two two is one line. Mm-hmm. It's I think I loved two when it came out, and I still think mm-hmm. it's a great variation. Um, but it doesn't have the same this sort of um, searching, this this not finding, which maybe for personal reasons I feel drawn to, and I think many people did too. Well, in in a way, Triple Levels Two is is more refined in the com- yep. composition department and deeper even. Mm. Like there's there's much more. Uh, so, for example, he uses the main the main theme of Triple Levels Two. He uses also at half speed on the record. Which I don't think in in Jubilees one we find that um, so interesting. Like yeah. there's so there's there's even more manipulation, um, but you could say because like later on more experience, better better or like a different composer, right? You do things differently, mm-hmm. and and but that doesn't necessarily mean that it it has the same power or. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's kind of like if you think about it, like. like even the idea to make a sequel to a record is is cool. Like it's something that had been done uh, with with films, and I don't know if uh, anything with like Meatloaf, <laughs> Bad Out of Hell, or something. I don't know when part two of that came out. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's just such a cool idea, and then to stick stick to the same for Tubal Bells, stick to the kind of largely to the, the same structure. And then fill it with variations of the original. It's kind of cool. It's very so it's, cool. It's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. You can like really, you can really um, fall, you know, very deep yeah. if you if you don't get it right. And he got it got it kind of right. It's cool. You know. Yeah, it's 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 actually so cool that Jean Michel Jarre, who um, I think sort of made fun of this, the fact that that Oldfield um, came up with this rather than re- making a new album, mm-hmm. replicate, uh, co- uh, did a follow up to another one. Actually, did the same thing a few years later with uh, Oxygen Seven Two Thirteen. Yes, and and actually, it's it composed so obviously in a similar vein. It also ha- makes use of uh, thematic variations, which he, <clears throat> I don't think he's ever really done that deeply before. That I think it's obviously a carbon copy for for for, for what Jar did. Mm-hmm. So, so it was inspiring, I think, in its way, very much. I think there's a few metal albums which might have either preceded it or followed it. I'm not quite sure, but there's. A <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, it's not important if it's no. if it is the first or you know of its kind, but it's it's a cool idea. It's a challenge to kind of like present something like that, go out and sort of like you know you you're exposing yourself to to the public opinion about something like that. It's really cool to do that. I have to say. Yeah, and you know, like I have been going on about the um, the finale, right? So the finale in, in Tubalwells One, in side one, um, which I said is like kind of like really cool harmonically, um, and you know, like I was obviously the, the question for me was always like, okay, especially as a young person, like how does does the composer can does the composer know what he's doing? In the sense of like, okay, does he really know what he's doing? And and it was interesting that by having Mike do Jubal Bells too, 
to realize because then we could see like how he was making variations of that. And by looking at the variations, we could understand what he may have known about what he originally did. And, and so because in the, the finale melody, um, and chord sequence and tubal bells too has both a B minor and a B major chord in it. And because that is sort of like what is happening in the piece that you like in the original in Tubal Bells One, that you have sort of like a the 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 bass line suggests the major mm-hmm. where the melody is the minor. And so it's interesting for me to see, like in, and that's why it's so great that we have Tubal Bells too. You can see, okay, he does that actually in two, he places them next to each other, like not on top of each other. So that means that maybe he didn't know. Mm-hmm. And he did do that, right? So, and and that's where I what I'm what I find fascinating. That's why I love studying, um, you know, Mike's discography, um, because it's such a such a beautiful well of uh, inspiration and mm. potential discovery. He definitely uses certain techniques. Um, in, I think in a, in a way that it seems unlikely that it that it's pure intuition. <clears throat> and coming to think of the sequence, um, there's an obvious, I mean, an obvious point of reference. Maybe that's something you can, um, chime in on is that there is an, I mean, there is a, an interesting reference point, which is this, the sequence which starts off the second movement, which is also a repeating figure. Um, so there's a similar idea. And then he obviously treats it in a very different way. But the, op- the, the so in, if we look at it in terms of ideas, or approach both sides open similarly. Yes, yes. And uh, where well, you could say the first side is very much like piano orientated, yeah. right? Um, and the second half is flageolets on guitar. So very much guitar. You couldn't couldn't play that on piano, interestingly enough. I, I kind of think that's cool too, right? And the... Um, Yes, you're right. So he's using sort of like a same kind of like technique. It's basically layering like two or three different uh, melodies. And the bass line is the one thing that's out of sync. So I don't know exactly now if the bass line is five notes or seven notes or something where the rest is just repeating in four, in groups of four. And so again, you get sort of like that, that, you know, things coincide differently, right? That's sort of like what, what's happening. Let me see what David Bedford called this. Um, analysis by David Bedford, side two. Um, so tune L, six, eight repeated figure in four parts with different number of beats in each part. Ah, that's what he says. I'm not sure if that's true. <laughs> uh, you know, different number of beats in each part so they coincide differently each time. Okay, so, that's, so that that's, is the. What Mike also, he does describe this not coinciding, um, idea yes 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 exactly exactly and then what what is beautiful about um about the you know the second half which it, I, i think is just wonderful like the first i mean the whole thing is wonderful just the first two sections so from this introduction of side two it then moves into what i let me just read this david bedford calls l moves from 6a to 3 4 top tune of one continues Piano assumes importance with coda. So this is, this is great. So the way that the piano is being used there as a lead instrument 
and the, the piano plays dissonant notes. Like plays, you know, tritones and, and, and also dissonant notes that are actually not in the key of what's happening in the background. It's so great, so great, so incredibly cool and so harmonically adventurous and melodic and, and folk. It's like, like folk music, right? Yes. In a way. Um, but sort of like in this beautiful, it kind of like you, you cannot really compare it to anything. But it sort of has the power of something like um, Smetana's uh, Moldau. I don't know yep. what it's called in English. I think it's actually called the Moldau. <laughs> the Moldau. Okay. So, so it has that, that, like this, this incredible power of of being like tunes. But then it's like so many tunes weaving in and out of each other, yeah. and and just just incredibly beautiful. And not not really. It's not really looks like something or doesn't sound like something that has been designed in a drawing board. It's just like okay, so these themes they work on the chord sequence. So that also means that the themes work with each other. So rather than than working our harmonies and everything, he's just kind of throwing everything into into the pot and letting it it coexist. And it's just it's just incredible. Yeah, there's uh, another parallel with Shah because obviously he's uh, been probably the bigger influence even in my <clears throat> personal life. Um, is this first album Oxygen, which which also is made up of disparate parts, which somehow fit together. And when I interviewed him recently, he actually did say he himself usually knows pretty much exactly why he did something and uh, to what end. But with that particular record, he doesn't. So he cannot quite explain everything with that one, mm -hmm. why it fit together, why it worked. Even though he had, like, the method on, on Oxygen was that he um, composed the, like, two, he'd composed it specifically with the two sides of the record in mind, like, like Mike did. And then he started with the middle piece of each side. So he, so he sort of composed the outer pieces from the middle, from the, from the core yes. outside, yes. from the core out, which is not what, what Oldfield did. But um, mm -hmm. I think that sort of gave it um, this coherence. I'm, with with tubular bells, I think it's more mysterious why some of that works. I've always, I think you'd say from folk music, I think uh, that is what makes it so special also is that <clears throat> rather than taking the classical composer hat and, and going to the, from, an, from an academic perspective into folk, he actually stays within the idiom, but extends it uh, into these long, epic, and uh, far more embracing and open pieces. If we go back to the cover again, so it has this force of nature, which leads us like this, this pastoral feel, which may allude to folk, um, but it has this sort of this weird structure, like it's, it's an instrument from the classical um, orchestra, But but again, also bent, um, and I don't know. It leads to this this surreal place where the two belong together. It's like the moon, like like the sun or the moon shining on on this landscape. Yeah, but the cover is so iconic, and I mean, like I loved, always loved the back with the uh, bones, yeah. with the bones, the burning bones on the beach. <clears throat> yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> It's another possible metal reference, I guess. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Before the fact. Yes. The um, it's interesting also that um, you mentioned the the horror um, soundtrack thing that it might that sort of might have been 
um, stylistic element. It's, I think, definitely when we look at the the question of why it was so successful, it was it was influential. In a way, I don't think that Mike actually fully un, fully grasped later on, and which I didn't grasp until I started researching it. Um, I think he's mentioned that no one in the wake of Tuba Bells tried to compose that way, um, really, and um, except obviously for the, the copycats or people who obviously alluded to his work. Um, but through The Exorcist, uh, a lot of hip-hop artists and um, artists in the, uh, from soul and R&B who were very much into horror movies picked up on that music. And then Halloween, which was a reference to The Exorcist, um, also had its own crowd, and then sort of it had an indirect one. So there's actually more than 80 tracks alone on, mentioned on whosampled.com, um, which make use of the tubular bells theme. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, I knew the Janet Jackson Velvet Rope one, uh, but there's there's myriads, there's 80 tracks which are either sampling, sampling or interpolating the tubular bells theme. Uh, in, in, in Sometimes just as an intro, sometimes as a musical element. It's really rich and its influence is... No one has has composed the way he did, but the influence is, is astounding and, and, and wide. Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. In one way, it, he was super influential, and in other ways, what he did didn't catch on. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, there's. I remember. I, I don't know which year that was when, like Janet Jackson had a track that had. Yeah, that's from the Velvet Rope. I think that's... Um, 80s, late 80s or something? Like later, actually. It's 90s, but uh, okay. I'll look it up. Yes. But it's... Um, and then, like, remember that there was the Paul Hatcastle track, 19. Yes. I don't know if you know about that. Mm. And there was actually a lawsuit. Oh, I didn't Because know. the melody was uh, phrases from the finale of Triple Bells. Oh, now you say it. It's true. Yes, yeah. it is true. Yes. Interesting. <laughs> and I think that Mike got a co-writing credit later on on that piece mm. because of that interesting huh i mean like it's it's questionable i don't want to go there if it's reasonable to do something like that or not but back in that in in the those days you know mm -hmm. like yeah i mean that is pretty pretty obvious lift yeah. it lift it you know um yeah i mean there's there's a lot a lot more we can say for so for example the inclusion of the um, so there's the bagpipe guitar section that then leads into the Piltdown Man section, to the song mm -hmm. part of it, of the record. And, and there's the, like the, the, the bagpipes guitar section was just so fascinating to me because it's the way that the melody is harmonized in fifths, um, is so out there. So again, like, like dissonant to the ear of like regular person. Um, and then the, the 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 timpani accompaniment, you know, like it goes like that, and you can hear the how the note is being bent on the timpani, for, you know, to, to find those notes, and and it's just it's just such a powerful, incredible sound, and and there, remember when I said that like one of the big themes that happens throughout Tribal Bells is the combination of the the binary rhythm and the triplet rhythm. Mm -hmm. And so there, like when it goes to the chorus of the of the bagpipe section, 
right? It, it started with... So now it's, it's in three, it's, it's in three here. And then it goes into... So it goes straight. So it goes from the, from being in three to being in, in two. And, and that is just such a powerful effect that like I had never heard anywhere else at the time and even now like it's a metric modulation right that's what people call metric modulation uh it's just so cool you know because it seems it feels as if the tempo is changing and uh and then that that going into the introduction that that um well again like four bar phrase going into the pill down man section or sometimes eight sometimes like there are different mixes where that that intro is, has different lengths. Um, so incredibly powerful. There is a, flu- a high sense of instability, fluctuation, change uh, in that music, just as there was in the time um, in general. Um, it was a time of beginnings mm-hmm. and a time of transitions. And um, Obviously, in his life, that was there was merit in his life, and maybe the instability of the music is a reflection of the instability of his own life and his his. Um, yeah, his but you know, I would never call there anything instable there with the music itself, because like there's 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 freedom to operate with that musical material, which is total kind of like total control. It's sort of like for me the opposite of instability. You could say that is the world where where stability was where you could generate stability and and in a way that's sort of like how i experienced that piece and maybe also if we're talking about uh escaping into music that's sort of like what it can give you that's where you have sort of control over these factors like the metric modulations right so it's not to me it doesn't sound unstable it sounds sounds very uh very bold actually right Funny. I mean, like maybe we have to have a different experience of that. Of the no, music I think there, the I think there's maybe the word fluctuation, this constant change, is um, definitely it's it stands out in his work uh, as the most, um, as you, you say, harmonically bold. And there's so much going on harmonically that's amazing. And um, even in Tumblr Bells too, I think there's less of that, which I think um, sometimes I wish for that for it to be more interesting in that. Yeah, there there's. Um the early stages of Triple Bells 2, which got released as a bonus track um, on a CD single, I think, uh, at the time, um, has sort of like different harmonic progressions that are not in the original anymore. So you could see that he was going for something else, but then maybe because of pressure and he wanted it to be a success and... Like who know who knows whoever like A and R person was talking to Trevor Horn also probably I mean I I I think Trevor probably is a is a is a great music lover and he loves what Mike does I'm sure so I don't think that Trevor would have intentionally kind of like uh, tried to water anything down I don't believe that I think it was like the dynamic that sort of led to uh, those changes. Um, but it's like that early stages. That's, that's the t- name of it. If you you know want to go and find it, you know, um, early stages is is quite different from how then Sentinel, the first section of Two Bells, came out to be. I always um, 
probably preferred it. And still, I'm probably glad he um, he went for the uh, Trevor Horn, more Trevor Horn sounding one. I think that because it's so different and really forward thinking as well. I I, I think he, looking back, I'm glad he he went for the one that got released. Mm-hmm. Um, but both, it would have been nice to have both, maybe. Um, I mean, for me, the question is more like, what would Tribal Bells 2 have been like yes. if he had stayed yeah. with the original introduction? Because then that whole piece may have changed as well. But I know I know that there is sort of like a bootleg release of the early versions of some other parts hmm. as well. And those are kind of like closer to um, what then really, what actually ended up on the record. So, mm. So we don't know. Yeah, and and you know one, we're kind of like like almost getting to the end here. But the, there we were skipping a few sections. I think that's okay. Like even though if those are the greatest <laughs> the greatest music <laughs> ever, but but so the um, what later on was being dubbed uh, ambient guitars. So like mm-hmm. Marcus uh, Marcus, <laughs> Marcus <laughs> Mike's solo actual improvisation. On those the four bars of six eight, mm-hmm. um, leading to the to the end of of, of the piece, um, is just stunning. It's just mm-hmm. an incredible, um, incredible melodic. Also referencing theme A again, mm-hmm. tune A again. Um, incredible improvisation, and I, I'm not sure if you knew, but there was only one electric guitar used for the whole of Tubular Bells, which is the telecaster that he got from mark mm-hmm. boland i think um and it's it's just it's just so beautifully played and and rich and then like a second guitar comes in halfway through and a second electric guitar and there's like a question and answer thing going on between the two guitars it's so beautiful and it's it's in a minor key it's in e minor and then for the for the last four chords it goes to major to a you know like a like a really standard bland progression in in E major, and we end on on E major, and that's the end of the piece. Before we you then get to the sailor's hornpipe, which yeah. is which is sort of like a really, I have to say, an incredibly nice touch. Yes, if a lot of people are kind of like critical or skeptical about it, but I think without it. Also, without it, it wouldn't be Tubular Bells. And it's the A, of course, it's the A's um, thing that he took from uh, from his time at the A's band. Um, but uh, I think to me, it always has this sense of, um, I don't know, waking from something and transitioning back. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're talking about the, the, where the section that he solos on, right? Yes, um, it's sort of dreamy and um, quiet and soft. And um, sort of a little bit like, I mean, this is like, it never occurred to me. It's a little bit like Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac also, in a way. Like a little bluesy, um, kind of an improv, an open an open section, yeah. right? Where everything else is so so incredibly structured and written out. And here it's like one one um, stream of consciousness where... Where there's not not really um, any repetition in it, mm-hmm. and so it's a really nice thing that that this kind of composition, this kind of way of expression, has always also found it into Tubular Bells. Yes, there is, uh, by the way, another genre reference uh, which I think uh, you'll have uh, you'll enjoy checking out. It's on Magnetic Fields, his third record. There's um, 
the fifth section, uh, so the, the fourth piece ends with this hypnotic sequence uh, um, rhythm, which is like almost like Kraftwerk mm-hmm. uh, type uh, thing, and with um, even has the the, the um, Trans Europa Express type of um, train sounds, uh, metal sounds in it. And then it closes and then it goes into a space, which is a rumba, it's a digital rumba. <laughs> and uh, I think every most, like 99% of people hate that piece. But to me, it, it feel has the same effect. It's sort of, um, the journey has ended, mm-hmm. but it doesn't end, it sort of it doesn't abruptly cut off, but it puts you in the state after that. It's almost like um, you have a movie and then there's sort of a, a, fi- a finishing scene or, or it's the, 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 the closing titles. I don't know. Yes, and he's done that on on quite a few yeah. other records, right? Most notably, uh, Amadon with On Horseback, yeah. and then he did kind of something similar on Return to Amadon, obviously, and uh, Songs of Distant Earth. Yeah. Uh, then even Taurus Two, the piece Taurus Two, the piece Crisis, they have sort of like these mm. these little codas after the big finale, and it's a it's a it's it's a wonderful. Uh, again, like you can see, like a very conscious way of a musical way to, to, or if you could even say narrative mm-hmm. way, to 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 uh, take responsibility somehow for for what the what the listener may take home. It's aftercare. It's aftercare, really. Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, it gives me goosebumps actually because I have never really consciously considered aftercare for people that listen to my music like i was more always more brutal with (laughs) with what i'm presenting um but i think it's a wonderful thing and it's very very human um humane even (laughs) so uh yeah yeah and and you know it's also also because he as far as i understand he used to play the sailor's hornpipe in folk clubs Yes, I, I, I think he says it's um, from his time with Kevin Ayers when he uh, when they would close the shows with that piece. Ah, they would really. Yeah, I, I didn't. So. I didn't know that. And that's another thing why I think um, the why is actually in a way it, there's no why, but there are plenty of whys at, at the same time. There's so much direct references from his life and uh, the music he made before that went into it. And he actually says that the, some of the sketches for Tubular Bells were made while he was still playing with Kevin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For and sure. I think the the, the sailor's hornpipe was was taken from uh, from from the gigs. What is special about the sailor's hornpipe too is like if you pay close attention, it's really super complex arrangement. Mm-hmm. There is like this very fast, which I think must be like half was a lot of that was, and we haven't even mentioned that a lot of parts on tubular bells have, were recorded at half half speed. Yes. So the double speed guitar, that is the thing. And then um, the Sado's hornpipe, a lot of the, the, the counter melodies happening in the background, they are really fast and they are definitely, most definitely recorded at half speed. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but the way that these melodies are, like those are actual fast melodies. Um, there is David Bedford's orchestration, which was also released as the orchestral tubular bells, right? And you can hear the orchestra struggling to through that at the end, where they have to play this very fast and getting it, you know, getting faster and faster a version of these yeah. really complex long melodies. These are some of the greatest musicians at that from their time. 
Yeah, and actually they do a pretty pretty bad, <laughs> pretty pretty bad job. Um, yes, um, but I, it's not it's not easy. I actually witnessed um, a live performance of the orchestral triple bars, the original hmm. uh, David Bedford version, um, in, in in London. That was I can oh. remember now, twenty seventeen or something, um, and it was it was incredible how how the 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 musicians had to struggle like it's it's difficult mm. a difficult piece of music you kind of like your internal clock has to be super precise to make it work and unfortunately in that um performance there were a few sections where like the the aforementioned effect happened that something was played too fast and just didn't work because of that mm. that happened there um but was what was great that steve Hillage was there mm. and like uh, 40 years after playing on the original uh, orchestral version, um, you know, he got to play it again. That was really nice. Um, but on the released orchestral tubular bells, um, there's Mike played yeah. an overdub, uh, which is beautiful, incredible. There's a great picture, by the way, of Steve Hillage performing in London during his solo and the He's standing in front of uh, the picture captures him and uh, and one of the musicians with this complete look of bewilderment on his face at what is happening, um, which is really I think an indication of the clash <laughs> yes. taking place there. Yes, yeah. In the, in the documentary um, about tubular bells, many of the people involved talk about tubular bells as one piece across two sides of violinists. I've never I, before. Watching it, I never thought of it as one piece spread, spread out. I mean, it's obviously called part one and two, but I think it's, you know, it's always felt, do you think of it as one piece spread out in two, or is it really two different? Because uh, yeah, well, <laughs> um, I think, I think it, is, it is one as well as it is two, right? And that is, that is the beauty of it. I think a, a lot of people are missing out by not knowing the second the, the yeah. side two. That was well. actually my favorite part for yes, the time. Yes. And it's just it's just absolute genius. It really is. And yeah, I mean like going back to Opus 1, you know, Opus 1 has peace which is the third section of side 2. Mm -hmm. Right? has that right after the the beginning tune. Yeah. So you see like in the initial conception these were mixed up, right? Side one and side two. So that's why I wouldn't I would be careful just to say it's like two completely different separate pieces. It's not. Like and again there's just the the fact how how both sides end in E major. Right? Sort of like that is also for me an indication also there's like one other theme uh, that we haven't mentioned it's the rhythm that is kind of like present in in the first on the first side and the second side so even there like this motivic uh, reference like even if it's something small like that is very it's very um, connecting connecting the parts for me Yes. Yeah. And there's 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 many things. The instrumentation um yeah. 
the, the beautiful, beautiful organ sounds on the second side. You know, it's just... There's more space there for the sounds to breathe. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's... It's more the way that people describe Hergis Ridge, which I experience, do not experience as a chill-out piece or anything. Um, I think this one has more of this dreamy dreaminess, the dreaminess that was sort of suggested in the opening of Hergis Ridge, but I think this one has that really beautiful drift, the drifting more than dreamy. It's drifting. Mm-hmm. Yes. The patience, it's a different sort of patience that he has with the bass riff in, in the first section where he has the patience to wait before introducing the melody and this one has the patience of lingering in one mood for a really yes. long time. And again, it's not just any bass line. It's It's a melody. Yeah. It's an incredible melody that's repeated over and over. It's an ostinato, right? And then on the on top of the ostinato, you have the organs playing beautifully, right? And then the solos on top. Yeah. yeah. So um, I don't know if how much we want to add. I mean, as the one thing I was originally going to start with is the question, why was it so successful? Mm-hmm. But this is also, I think, um, I mean, there's, there's sort of, it has this marketing aspect and then there's the musical aspect. Um, I think this is definitely, as so many of the, the big successes in music recording history, it's um, at the, the right piece at the right time. Um, I think um, it's beautifully recorded, which plays a very important part. If I... Um, um, when I when I listen to the Glockenspiel, for example, in in the uh, in the finale, I think it sounds incredible. I don't think there's ever been a more beautiful capturing of the Glockenspiel. Mm-hmm. Uh, not exactly a typical solo instrument by any means, and I think it's so beautifully captured. I mean, Tom Newman, he wasn't a producer, and he sort of declared himself a producer, and then uh, I don't know, captured it with this. There's nothing, it's not perfect, the recording. I still think that the, the opening, that the, when the bass comes in um, with um, um, tune A, mm-hmm. I still think it's too soft. It's not loud enough. You have, they have people complaining about new pressing and saying the, the bass is not loud enough. But that's the way it sounds in the original recording, actually. You know um, what? I think it's absolutely perfect. Yeah, it could be, but I don't, I don't like it. I think it's. <laughs> no, I, what, I, what, I mean, what I mean by that is that uh, it, is, it is the way it is. And if you really. I mean, like tubular bells, if we want to talk about sound and sound design, it has sort of these different registers yes. that I don't think I've been, but I also, I'm not a, I'm not a music specialist, right? <laughs> I kind of am in a way, but also like for at the, at that time, like to have like real sub bass, hmm. like there's real sub bass on that record in a way that is, so it's sitting Almost like you could say, like an octave, even if it's not a whole octave, but it sits so far below what the bass guitar does, right? So you have that really low rumble, you could say, but clean, clean kind of like low rumble with the basses stuck, you know, like layered on top, and it's just, it's just incredible. Like they're just for that. If you really, really listen on a good system or with good headphones, you have these, these, these you know, more layers than you would expect. Like where usually, let's say, it's three layers. So low, mid, and high, right? But with Mike's music, you have at least seven layers, uh, say seven different registers. And all of that is present 
uh, on tubular bells already. Certainly, so well done. Certainly, you have, definitely have a point in the sense that even though I still think it's a bit too, it's not loud enough, and I still think maybe in a way it should be louder for me. It of course that the pre the, the fact that it's not as present in the beginning gives it all the more effect when uh, the bass the, the the big bass riff comes at the end because that one is captured with so much intensity and so much bass and so much punch and um, ferocity that I think that, exactly and uh, underneath that we have the the organ bass yeah you don't forget that there's like an extra low note under the, the those heavy riffs yeah. there right and you know what I absolutely love um, when we get to talk about the re-recording -re 2003 at some point right um, he actually uses throughout that record and I only noticed that much later really late a fretless bass so throughout that whole record he's playing a fretless bass mm. where on the original it's a fretted bass mm. and a lot of people are complaining about the sound of the opening section on Tubal Bluff 2003 but it's because I, th I think it's a fretless bass so it sounds very different. It sounds wobbly. Sounds kind of synthy like, uh, and maybe it was sampled. Doesn't matter. But it sounds really cool. And you know, uh, again, you can see like this adventurous side to allow, like in the recreation, to use an instrument that is like not fretted versus fretted, for example. I think that's so cool. That's yeah. interesting. I didn't know, and I agree. It it, it does sound. Slightly synthetic. Yes, yeah. yes, and and I wasn't I wasn't sure if it was a fretless bass, but then in later in other sections in the re-recording, re you can he actually hear that there's a fretless. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's incredible, and I actually know the guy who's bought the wall. It's a wall fretless bass, and who owns that bass now. So <laughs> another, another interviewee. Kind of I was going to say about the about the reason for the success. I think on like on a marketing perspective, I can see why it would have been a risk in a way. On the other hand, I also think, and this ties in with the music, is that um, sometimes you have albums like you have developed like punk, which are an obvious uh, anti thesis to what is happening on the market, um, and then there are I think there are albums which um, which are sort of they they encapsulate something which is not there yet which sort of there's a sort of a yearning for something um which the music industry doesn't which is dealing with like the surface doesn't see i still think that like in the 90s you had or early 2000s you had albums like nora jones um forget the name of the album actually now but um come on over i'm not quite sure anyway the that album sold several millions of copies even though no one in the music industry really, bar a very few people, saw that coming. But there was a yearning for it. It wasn't there. Um, there was a yearning for beauty and something outside of the, like this, this topical thing where there's always debate and um, things become political. And I think it's ironic to think that some people were actually, until the very end, trying to put vocals on that, like, like lyrics mm. on their record. Because I think... It's precisely the fact that this music was long and expensive, that it was <clears throat> ambitious and daring, um, that it did not have lyrics, which could be divisive, um, but that it actually focused on beauty, on, um, on a, a narrative, um, on timeless qualities, um, made by someone who did not, to the least degree, 
have any interest in becoming a star um, or living the life of a rock star. Um, which even like a band like Yes, who did something with Close to the Edge, that's that's also like taking a small theme and building it into a 20-minute piece. But they were rock stars and that music was very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was it was everything that was not, but it was everything which the other things were not. And it did not try to be what the other things were. And, and, and I think in this, but, but it wasn't trying to be against it. And I think that, I think in a way, combined with the incredible qualities of the themes and the melodies and the way of working with them, I think it was bound to become big. And every, I mean, he describes in the book how at first everyone is skeptical in the recording team. And then as they start actually committing it to tape, the, everyone gets thrilled and suddenly they know they're making history. And it's, I don't know, it's, to me, it's, um, that's the reason why it's so successful because it, it's, it's so undivisive while still being daring and not, it's not trying to be mellow in the middle of the road. It is, it is bold without, you know. Yeah. I mean, let's just say it's, it's great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It just is. And, and yes, lucky circumstances that it actually, like people go to hear it. And once you hear it, like there's no question that this is like, like probably at the time, like, and even now the greatest thing you've ever heard. Like, and, and just, I mean, that's just so cool. You just need to get it out there. And somehow it happened, yeah. you know. Which is, I think, exactly how it, you know, there was an openness to 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 this, and it, as you say, it Peel just had to play it, and when he played it, that was a big step. And then when when the way they played um, played it live, that was another step. And then even The Exorcist, um, I think that was. It, it, actually, I watched that movie for the first time yesterday because uh, it was okay. just now in my <laughs> subscription, and. Um, and I understand why why it worked in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's just thirty seconds or so, mm-hmm. and then it come then actually there's a, there's a section in the playing in the background like it was playing from a dorm room next door, mm-hmm. um, but it's they cut it off at thirty minutes and it leaves you wanting more. And it's very cleverly used in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's also a movie about people with psychological problems, which I thought was fascinating. Mm-hmm. So the story is actually that um, Fritkin heard it in a record store and thought this is the right movie. And then he puts it in the movie about psychological disturbances. Mm-hmm. That is very, I think, very interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have. Uh, <laughs> let's let's. You know, we're going to talk about tubular bells many, many well, the more orchestral times. Tubular bells is next, right? Yeah, it really is next, and maybe that will probably be a shorter uh, <laughs> discussion. Uh, yeah, I would say. Uh, Thanks for listening, right? And uh, we're going to move on and we're going to be back soon. Thanks, Tobias, for your your extra perspective here. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, we, have, we have many episodes to come. Thank you.